How are psychedelics like psilocybin being used in the growing field of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy? And how can nurses interested in such science get involved? Let's talk all about it with psychiatric nurse practitioner Andrew Penn, right here on episode 319 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. In these days of the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm still bringing you my pandemic updates at the end of every month. Meanwhile, this podcast continues to be all about you, your personal and professional development, your nursing and healthcare career, and the healthcare system as a whole. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, entrepreneurship, medicine, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride, whether you're new to the show or you've been on this journey with me for months or maybe even years. Thanks for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. The show notes for this episode, where you can learn all about Andrew and his work, will be at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 319. And like I said, we're here with new friend of the pod, Andrew Penn. Andrew, it's so nice to have you here from UCSF and from, you know, the perspective of all the great work you do in the world. And if we could just jump right in, I want to ask you a question. So in a nutshell, could you tell us what is psychedelic assisted psychotherapy? Sure thing. Thanks for having me, Keith. Yeah, it sounds really strange at first glance, right? You think, um, you know, we were all trained that there were good drugs and drugs of abuse and never the two shall meet, except then you realize things like morphine are really helpful when you're in the hospital, but are also extremely abusable. And so this idea of using um, a psychedelic medication as an adjunct to psychotherapy is actually an old idea. It, it started in the 1950s, believe it or not. It, it was well before the Timothy Leary and the hippies ever got a hold of, of psychedelic mm-hmm. drugs. They were being used in psychiatry as a means of accelerating therapeutic change. In the 1950s. In the 1950s, believe it or not. Yeah, LSD was actually first discovered in 1938, and it wasn't discovered to be psychoactive until 1943. But it was in the 1950s through the 1960s that there was a whole first wave of psychedelic-assisted therapy research. And one of the things that you have to understand to kind of get your mind around this framework is that this is different than how we use drugs now. Uh, how we use uh, psychotherapeutic drugs. So if you're taking Prozac, for example, you're going to take that every day in order to maintain a therapeutic change. Um, In fact, what's the first question we ask people when they relapse in their mental health condition? We say, are you still taking your medication? Because we know that if you don't keep taking the medication, you don't get the change. With psychedelic-assisted therapies, it's a totally different paradigm. So the idea is using a medication once, maybe two or three times at most, embedded in a framework of psychotherapy. So by that, I mean that there's you're working with the same, usually two psychotherapists to prepare for the session. So for many hours beforehand, you would have preparatory psychotherapy. And then you are with those same two therapists the whole day of the dosing session. And then you meet with them again for several times to do what we call integration psychotherapy. Uh, in the days and weeks following the drug session. Now, in some of the study protocols, that's repeated uh, once or twice, but often it's it sometimes can be just a single dose of, of the drug. 
Uh, and what seems to happen is that we, we have the capacity to accelerate psychotherapeutic change. Um, you know, psychotherapy is a, is a phenomenal uh, process, but it can be really slow. Can be really much slower than people would like. It can be slower than a lot of payers want to pay for, um, and and because it takes time, uh, sometimes it's hard to find a therapist because they're tied up with other people, because it takes sometimes many months or years even uh, for people to get well in, in psychotherapy. So the idea behind this is really just kind of speeding that process up. I can attest to that from personal experience as a user of psychotherapy. Yeah. So, so, the, so the purpose, <laughs> uh, yeah. so the purpose is to accelerate the psychotherapeutic healing process through using psychedelic um, um, medicines yeah. to, mm-hmm. to help that person process. Like, is it, is the, how do I ask this? Is it that it helps the person go deeper into their psyche faster and they can process stuff faster than they might through t- simply through talk therapy? Sometimes. So it would probably help to, to explain what conditions this is being looked at yeah, that would be as helpful. a treatment for. Yeah. So there's really two major players uh, in terms of the drug and the indication. So the first one is MDMA, which is historically known as Molly or ecstasy mm-hmm. as an adjunct to treatment for PTSD. So in that particular case, the drug effects allow the person to process uh, what could be very upsetting traumatic memories in such a way that they don't become so triggered that they shut down or become really uh, activated by the memories of the, the trauma. Hmm. Because people with trauma generally spend a lot of energy trying not to remember the thing that happened to them, um, or they, they can't think of anything else but that. And so the idea of using MDMA is because it has this capacity to really reduce briefly uh, for the duration of the drug, the fight or flight response that we get when we think about traumatic memories or when we're in a traumatic experience, uh, the person is more able to process that traumatic memory. That's the idea behind that. The other drug that's under study is psilocybin, which is the ingredient, active ingredient in what are sometimes called magic mushrooms. Uh, as a Primarily, that's been looked at as a treatment for depression, although there has been some um, some research looking at that as a treatment for addiction as well. And in that case, the, the shift that it's, it's not totally clear what is happening inside the brain. There's a number of uh, really compelling uh, research uh, pieces of research coming from the neuroscience field, looking at the way that the brain essentially becomes uh, resistant to change in certain psychiatric states. Uh, so for example, if somebody has depression and you ask them, you know, do you think you're going to be depressed a month from now? Many people would say, yeah, I've been depressed for 10 years. Why would it be any different a month from now? Uh, same thing with addiction. If you ask somebody who's has an alcohol use disorder, do you think you'll still be drinking a month from now? They'll probably say, I don't see why it would change. So those are, you can think of those as states of kind of excessive rigidity or resistance to change. And that, that change uh, resistance is reflected in um, patterns in the brain, um, electrochemical patterns in the brain that can be measured under fMRI. And what it appears that psilocybin does is it, it causes a transient and a disruption of those rigid 
networks, if you will. And so it allows for a period of increased mental cognitive flexibility, behavioral flexibility that can be leveraged in the time following the psychedelic session. So that, that, and that may reflect um, increased neuroplasticity. It may reflect decreased inflammation. We're not totally sure. Those are all questions that are under investigation, but these are, um, these are all possible mechanisms that might account for why uh, psilocybin has this antidepressant effect. And that's why it's being uh, both psilocybin and MDMA are being studied in um, late stage trials. So MDMA is in phase three, psilocybin is in late phase two, and both drugs were given what's called breakthrough status by the FDA, which means that um, they were thought to be so promising for these two diseases that we don't have great treatments for uh, that they that their study process uh, should be streamlined by the FDA, and that's what breakthrough status allows. Wait, wait a second. So the FDA, the FDA is actually has their eyes on this as something very promising, and I guess I don't want to get really deep into this because this would be a whole hour for us. But I would suspect that the pharmaceutical industry might have an issue with that. Yes and no. The pharmaceutical industry is definitely interested in what's happening. Now, what's interesting about both of these um, these drugs is that, for the most part, they have uh, they've been bootstrapped. The research has been has been taken on. So, the primary sponsor of the of the MDMA study is an organization called the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which mm-hmm. is a nonprofit. Um, in California that has been uh, undertaking this project for about 35 years now and has sponsored all the phase two and is the current sponsor of the phase three studies. Um, If they are successful, then they will um, for a period of time be, they've also created a, um, a public benefit drug corporation. So they would be the manufacturer and distributor of MDMA to therapists who were using it, who'd been trained to use it and were qualified to use it. Um, psilocybin has, is being investigated primarily by two uh, organizations. One is a nonprofit based here in the United States called the USONA Institute. Uh, full disclosure, I um, do receive some salary support from them for the research that I do. And the other is a for-profit company out of the UK called Compass Pathways. And the, you know, the challenge with psilocybin is that, um, of course, it's a naturally occurring compound, but the FDA doesn't allow you to, you can't just grind up a mushroom and put it in a capsule and call it an FDA approved drug. They require it to be uh, synthesized, uh, pure and consistent. And so there's, um, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of hubbub in the psychedelic world about where this is going commercially and uh, how these drugs are going to be available to the public if they are FDA approved. But yeah, interestingly, unlike most drugs which come out of pharmaceutical company research labs um, and are brought to market through that process, uh, this has a rather different story than than most drugs that we use in practice. It's a pretty fascinating story, and it's a little it's a little backwards from what we're used to. And it does go against well, it goes against what we we've been taught over the years, quote unquote, we. Um, but also with the legalization of marijuana and the use of marijuana, you know, it med- medicinally, you know, as a as a treatment 
I think that's opened a lot of people's eyes, not everybody's, but a lot of people's. And, you know, there's been so much, what would be the word? Like there's been so much, um, um, seeing these vilification of these substances for so long, even though we know that native cultures, you know, have used them for, we can't even count how many years native cultures have used them. So before we go even further, I just want to ask you about what you do. You're an adult nurse practitioner and a psychiatric clinical nurse specialist. So you yeah, you have- so I practice as a psychiatric nurse practitioner. Yes. Yeah, so you have training in both adult and psychiatric, mm-hmm. right? So you have degrees in both. And you have completed, it says extensive training in psychedelic assisted therapy and research at the California Institute for Integral Studies. Is that, right. is that part of a university or is that a separate institute? Actually, is a it's a private university here in San Francisco. Oh, it's a private university. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. wasn't. So they aware offer. Of they were the first to offer a um, a training program for people who are interested in working therapeutically with psychedelics. So they've been doing that since 2016, I believe, and I went through that a few years ago. Oh, graduated from that program. Okay, I thought I wasn't sure if it was like under the auspices of a, of another university. So yeah, it's a, it's a freestanding private. I see organization, and you're you're also an attending psychiatric NP with the San Francisco Veterans Administration with their psychiatric NP residency program, and you've been a what they call a study therapist in the phase three MDMA trial, right? And that That's was right. specifically for PTSD. That's right. That was a study I mentioned earlier. Yeah. And and you're a co-investigator in that phase two study with psilocybin working with depression specifically, right? That's right. So, and there's a lot more to your stellar um, (laughs) background and- and, We don't want to put people to sleep with that. No, no. But I just want to (laughs) point out, I like to point out like where you're coming from so that as people listen, they're like, oh, okay, now I understand where- where Andrew's coming from, right? So you have this background in what we could say traditional psychiatric nursing mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. as an NP, and you've been exploring these, these very interesting, and we could call them new realms of, of mm-hmm. therapy. So, you know, we've, we've heard about how some of these substances, there's promise around, around, um, dementia and is there promise around other other um, conditions as well like what else is being looked at in terms of what these could possibly be useful for yeah um, the the research at, into dementia is very early and I can't really comment on that because okay. there's a there's a company looking at an LSD analog um, that that is very early in clinical trials um, for that condition. But I can speak more to conditions, um, some of which I alluded to earlier. So some of the more interesting ones, certainly addiction, uh, there was a a very important study that came out of Johns Hopkins uh, looking at uh, tobacco use disorder uh, and found that a a a psilocybin-assisted therapy session was uh, quite effective in helping people to quit smoking. And as we know, as nurses, that's a tremendous public health problem and also a very difficult substance to stop using. Uh, there was some very important work done by a researcher named Michael Bogenschultz, who's been looking at alcohol use disorder and 
psilocybin. There's um, a researcher named Peter Hendricks down in uh, the University of Alabama who's looking at crack cocaine uh, use disorder as a potential um, psilocybin as a potential intervention for that. Um, but then some of the other non-substance uh, use uh, diagnoses would include things like eating disorders. Really? Um, as a disorders. potential, yeah. So there is yeah. some work, uh, particularly looking at MDMA as a uh, assisted therapy as a particular as a specific treatment for uh, eating disorders. And there's also been some interesting work looking at MDMA as an intervention for couples in which one of the members of the couple has PTSD, because we know that PTSD extracts a tremendous toll on relationships. Mm-hmm. And um, this is a this is a, a an early uh, study looking at the possibility of that. The other area where nurses may be particularly interested in uh, psychedelic assisted therapy is in palliative care. And there's been a, a in fact some of the earliest work that uh, Charlie Grobe did uh, back in the early t- 2010s was looking at a psilocybin intervention in patients with cancer. And there was a, a pair of very pivotal studies that came out of NYU and Hopkins a few years ago now, looking at people with life-threatening illness who were given a, um, who were experiencing uh, emotional distress as a result of that, and were given a psilocybin-assisted therapy uh, treatment and found tremendous success that for those who continued to um, survive their, their illnesses, uh, the, the interesting thing about these effects is that they persist. And the follow-up study at the NYU study um, some of those subjects went out four and a half years, and a lot of the benefits that they gained during the time of the therapy uh, were still present four and a half years later. And then most recently, a colleague of mine at, at uh, UCSF named Brian Anderson did a very interesting study with long-term HIV survivors here in San Francisco. So um, in San Francisco, we were, of course, hit very hard by HIV AIDS in the early 1980s. And there um, were, of course, you know, thousands of, of people died, uh, particularly hard hit among, among gay men. And um, there is a subset of people who made it until the mid-90s when protease inhibitors, antiretrovirals came out. And a lot of those people were became long-term survivors. But what happened was uh, many of them lost their communities on average, the people in the study had lost a new 18 people that died uh, during that time, uh, some as many as 100 people that had died. So they were experiencing what um, Brian called demoralization. And demoralization isn't a DSM diagnosis, but it's a very common phenomenon in the uh, palliative care world where people lose sort of a, a will to live, they feel like life is purposeless. And so what they did is they did a psilocybin um, assisted therapy intervention. But what was particularly novel about that study was that the preparatory and the integration work was done as a group. So they brought six of these men together with two therapists and they did all their preparatory work as a group. They did the dosing individually with two therapists and the individual patient. And then once that was all done, they came back together as a group for several more integration sessions. And what was really interesting was that that intervention by putting it in a group actually had added effects, uh, added benefits, because it really kind of created a, a common community of, of people that had been through a really difficult time in their personal lives and city history of San Francisco um, and help them find meaning and decrease their experience of demoralization. So palliative care is another big area of interest uh, for these interventions. 
That's fascinating. And, you know, I could also think having worked in the AIDS world myself in the 90s and also the late 80s um, and having known a lot of people in the early 80s when things first really took off, so to speak, in the pandemic, you would think survivor's guilt is also an issue. So you have depersonalization and you know the trauma of all the loss, and then you think about survivor's guilt. And, you know, being the one left standing among a hundred friends or acquaintances. So it's really fascinating, the palliative care issue too, because, you know, nurses are involved in every aspect of care you've mentioned here, you know, um, long-term care, palliative care, hospice, um, working with people with chronic illness, working with people with chronic pain. I mean, nurses are involved in any aspect of that part of healthcare that you'd like to elucidate, right? So I want to talk more in the second half of the show about opportunities for nurses. And if this episode really like, really piques somebody's curiosity what can they do? Who can they talk to? Where can they go to learn more and find out like, what can a nurse actually do? Because we do have the Cannabis Nurses Association now. We have cannabis nurses who are out there working with patients. So that's happening. So people mm-hmm. are becoming aware of that. But psychedelic um, therapies, I think, will be new to most people. Um, though there have been studies out in articles, I think a lot of us have seen them. So I want to talk about that. And I also want to talk about, um, you know, how this could really work. You and I talked about this when we first hopped on the phone some months ago. Mm-hmm. You know, if if some of these therapies take hours of a day and mm-hmm. you need two therapists at, at all times, mm-hmm. there's cost and insurance. And yeah. is this really only going to be, you know, something that elite people can can access. So I'd like to talk about accessibility too, because I think, you know, when we talk about healthcare justice, mm-hmm. we want to look at equity around the availability of cutting edge therapies. Absolutely. So it's a there's critical a lot, issue. There's a lot to talk about. Mm-hmm. So um, we're going to be right back for the second half of episode 319 of the Nurse Keith Show with Andrew Penn. So now we're going to take a pause for the cause for just a moment. Please consider becoming a patron of The Nurse Keith Show, just like other awesome listeners who value the show so much that they want to give just a little bit each month to support the work we're doing here. When you pledge, you not only get the satisfaction of helping produce and support The Nurse Keith Show, you also get some pretty cool premiums and gifts from yours truly. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith to read all about it. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash nurse Keith. And if you know someone who could benefit from career coaching with me, please consider referring them. And if they become a paying client, you'll receive credit for an hour of coaching with me. And there's no expiration date on that credit. So you can keep it in your back pocket until you need it most. And remember that you can refer as many people as you like and continue to earn those coaching credits. What an incredible deal. And please head over to nursekeith.com and sign up for my newsletter, which comes out regularly and brings you supportive messages, 
updates from my blog and my podcast, resources, and all sorts of other stuff. Remember, nursekeith.com, sign up for that newsletter, and you'll also get a free download from me as my gift to you. Anyway, those are my sincere asks today. So now let's dig back into today's topic without further ado. And welcome back to the second half of the episode. Remember, the show notes are going to be located at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 319. We're here again with friend of the pod and my new friend and colleague, Andrew Penn, psychiatric nurse practitioner from University of California, San Francisco. And Andrew, we've been talking about something really cool, pretty cutting edge, and that a lot of people probably haven't heard about. So, and that's psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and all the research that's happening around it. And one of the things I wanted to talk about first was, you know, if this does pique the curiosity of a nurse who's heard about this or is hearing about it the first time and they're like, whoa, (laughs) you know, they (laughs) think this is really cool and they Mm want to know more. So how can a nurse first explore this? One out of personal interest, like, wow, this is really interesting. I'd like to know more intellectually, right? Um, And then maybe there are some career opportunities for nurses who would like to get into this because I would think that this is a burgeoning field that 10 years from now, 15 years from now, will be probably have some robustness to it. So what can a nurse do if he or she like feels like, hi, I'd really like to check this out? Well, I would encourage them to check out the webpage of an organization that I helped co-found called Open Nurses. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it stands for the Organization of Psychedelic and Entheogenic Nurses. It's O-P-E-N-U-R-E-S, OpenNurses.org. Uh, and we have a very active uh, private Facebook page as well. O-P-E-N-U-R-S-E-S. So it's one N in the middle of it. Yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah, that's the, the one key thing is there's one in, uh, so we founded that because what we were finding. So when I say we, I'm talking about, uh, myself and three other nurse colleagues from my, uh, psychedelic therapist training program. Uh, we, we put this together because what we were finding was that a lot of nurses were interested in this, but they didn't know that other nurses were interested in it. Mm-hmm. So they didn't know how to find each other mm-hmm. and uh, we didn't know how to, um, how to connect. And so, and also what we wanted to start to do was to articulate the specific uh, perspective of nursing in psychedelic assisted therapy. You know, so sometimes when nurses first hear about this, they think, oh, wow, that sounds kind of weird. Um, that sounds like a really long day. But I say, you know, have you ever worked in an ICU? Um, have you ever been at bedside for 12 hours with one or two patients? Sure, you've done that, you know, and did you go through that day with that person in varying different states of consciousness, confusion, clarity? Yeah, sure, you did that. Did you keep that person safe? And help them navigate their own healing. Yeah, you did. So you know what? Your 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 native sensibilities as a nurse are actually perfectly well matched to this kind of work. That's fascinating. Well, thank you for that that comparison. Well, and I've been working on a paper that has just been accepted for publication. Uh, working, I, I co-wrote this with uh, Gene Watson, who many some people in your audience may know as sure. a as a longstanding uh, nurse scholar, nurse theorist. Yeah, who she's really up in Boulder, talk- Colorado. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. and um, you know she was thinking about 
sensibilities that applied to psychedelic assisted nursing 30 years ago um, without even realizing that that's what she was doing. And it was sort of a rediscovery of her work because I read her work in graduate school. And, you know, like a lot of nursing theory, sometimes I had a little bit of a hard time wrapping my mind around it. But, you know, with some more time under my belt and experience, it started to make more sense what she was talking about. And what Jean has done so beautifully is really to describe the experience of care that we provide as nurses. And, you know, she calls it the caritas processes. And really, you know, it's, I think a lot of times people, when they first read it, they, it, it's so obvious to them because this is just the air that we breathe as nurses. You know, we don't think about describing what it is that we do. We assume that people know what we do. Unfortunately, we often suffer from uh, a lot of stereotypes about what we do. You know, don't that we? we just hand people pills and wear starch, starched white uh, uniforms, which mm-hmm. I'm sure you have a closet full like I do. Right. And you uh, and I look great in the white hose and the pumps, right? Oh yeah, exactly. exactly. You yeah. know, I, I, I clean up well. Yeah. Uh, your, your podcast listeners won't know that, but yeah, exactly. So, you know, so in the absence of describing what we do to the rest of the, not only the medical profession, the healthcare profession, but also to the lay public, then we run the risk of having our profession defined by stereotypes mm. uh, and, and also misunderstood. And so what Jean does is she really describes that experience of caring for somebody and being cared for and how we co-create that with the patient. Uh, we, 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 I was thinking about this yesterday. It's almost like we get invited into somebody's house and we're, we're invited in as a guest and, and it's like, we're, we're coming in as like a contractor and we're suggesting ways that they could make changes and we help them make those changes. Um, and suddenly the inside of their house looks different, uh, looks better. It looks nicer. And then we leave. Um, and, and that's, that's how we're, that's the relationship. We co-create this, this relationship with our patients. And I thought, you know, that, that is exactly what we do in therapy. It's exactly what we do in psychedelic assisted therapy. And as nurses, we have the added benefit of knowing how the body works. You know, we understand, uh, we can, we can differentiate, uh, hypertension that is concerning from hypertension that might be transient and and nothing to write home about. Um, so we have that capacity to care for the physical body as well. And you know, nurses are generally very comfortable, say, touching their patients therapeutically and appropriately. Um, and this is something that may be necessary in psychedelic sessions because psychedelic sessions. It's, it's important to underscore that these treatments are not always easy. Uh, it's not, this is not like, um, you know, going to a party. This is off the intention of a psychedelic is really pivotal to create what the experience uh, will be. So if somebody goes into this saying, you know, I'm going to work on some really old stuff. I'm going to work on some trauma. That experience can be pretty difficult. It can be emotionally really challenging, can be anxiety provoking. A lot of emotions can come forth and, um, you know, we need to be able to be present for patients for a long period of time. You know, a, a therapy session might be five hours, seven wow. hours, eight hours. It can be a long time. And a lot of that time is actually the, the, the subject or patient is, is spent inward. In fact, we encourage that. We, mm-hmm. we give the person headphones with music on it and usually eye shades and really encourage them to relax and direct their attention inward mm-hmm. because that seems to be where a lot of the important material comes up. A lot of the healing occurs. Um, the, 
the therapy part, when people think about therapy and talking to a psychotherapist, a lot of that actually happens before and after the drug session. Right. You said there's a lot of preparatory work and then there's a lot of debriefing after. Exactly. Not and just the same debriefing. day. This is like, no. this is like for days, exactly. many sessions. And it's in that debriefing mm-hmm. that people really make sense out of the experience and figure out how to put it to work in their daily lives. I see. And this is one reason you told me that when you do these sessions, at this point anyway, in this process of discovering how to do this, right, that there's two therapists because you need to be with the patient at all times. And if it's a five-hour session, the therapist has to like use the restroom or get a bite to eat or have a cup Mm -hmm. of coffee. And so you need someone there at all times. And I really liked your comparison to the ICU when you were asking the nurses saying, oh, that's a long day to be with a patient. And you're, you made that comparison. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well, that, that kind of makes sense. So it's just, it's just out of a lot of our ken around how we normally think of interacting with patients. And it's interesting, you would say that a lot of it is internal, that you know they, they'll take the medication, they'll put on headphones, eye shade, and they're doing a lot of work, you know, maybe in a semi dream state or something, right? They're, they're kind of processing the mm-hmm. trauma or whatever it is that they said they, they want to address. And, right. But does during the course of these hours, I'm assuming there's a lot of conversation that might take place. There can interaction. be. There can be. You know, it's interesting. Some, with some subjects that I've worked with, um, they're very conversational and they often actually need a little bit of um, guidance to, to direct their attention inward. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes even that same subject, um, this, the person I'm thinking of spent about three hours internally uh, lying on his, on his back on the couch uh, with eye shades and music on. And by our protocol, we check in with them every hour if they're not talking, you know, we just briefly, you know, touch their arm and say, how are you doing in there? And do you need to use the bathroom? And do you need anything to eat? And he just said, no, I'm going to stay in here for, for a while. And, and it was in that space that he really was able to make some peace with some of the traumas that he'd experienced. That's fascinating. And, um, you know, and I know you said around open nurses that this is a place where nurses can learn more. And I wanted to ask, because one word you mentioned was entheogenic. Can you explain what entheogenic means? Because it was the yeah. organization of psychedelic and entheogenic, right? So can you explain? There's a number of, of uh, terms that you, you, you will hear used uh, about this sort of class of substances. You know, historically, a lot of us were trained in calling them hallucinogens, mm-hmm. which is really a misnomer because most of them don't actually cause true hallucinations. Right, right. They may cause distortions of perception. Yeah. Um, the word psychedelic was actually a word made up by Aldous Huxley and Humphrey Osmond in the 1950s, which means it's Greek for touching within. Um, um, so it's, okay. it's, uh, going within and entheogenic is often a term that is used, uh, synonymously with, with, uh, psychedelic compounds, you know, particularly you hear it more used with plant medicines such as ayahuasca, psilocybin or, um, peyote, for example. Yeah. Um, entheogen is often a term that is used in that. Thanks. I was not familiar with that term. Okay. Yeah, it's not as common. Yeah. So do you feel that, that over time, um, there will be more opportunities for nurses to get involved, kind of like how nurses are getting involved in cannabis nursing, the therapeutic use of cannabis, that there will be beyond 
research, which some nurses might be able to get involved in, obviously, because most research studies need nurses involved. But do you think there's going to be space for nurses to to delve into this more as practitioners in, like we were saying, in 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Is this going to be like a, a real thing? Yeah, I think it will be. And I think it already is, is particularly in the ketamine world. So ketamine, which we haven't really talked about up till now. That was my next question. <laughs> ah, <laughs> I'm getting out of you. Is, um, is a reading my current, okay, go ahead. <laughs> is an FDA approved drug that's used off-label for depression, uh, has been for a number of years now, and uh, can be administered in different ways. But one of the ways that it can be given is something called ketamine-assisted therapy, where essentially the same paradigm of preparatory non-drug session happens uh, drug session with therapists, uh, usually using IM ketamine, mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, integration therapy afterwards. So nurses are already involved in the provision of that care because that's not an experimental drug that's already out in the world. Um, but yeah, I do think nurses are going to be really important in this and and not just as support staff. I think that's one of the things that, that we're very passionate about with Open Nurses is to advocate for a seat at the table as full partners. And that right now, one of the big unknowns about the future of psychedelic therapy, so both psilocybin and MDMA are still not FDA approved. It's important to recognize that they are still controlled substances. And the FDA has never been in the business of regulating psychotherapy. They don't know much about it, is, is what I've heard. They know all about how to see if drugs are safe, how to see if they're effective, because that's their mandate. Uh, this is an unusual combination because you're combining a drug with psychotherapy. And so now the big question is, will the FDA weigh in on what that therapy should look like? And more to your question, will they weigh in on who is qualified to provide that therapy? And we don't have an answer to that yet. So one of the things that we're wanting to do with Open Nurses is to advocate that nurses are fully qualified to be providers of this care, Um, whether that's in an advanced practice role or a, a, a staff role, that nurses should be central in this in this uh, treatment. Uh, and that's part of the advocacy work that, that we want to do as an organization. Uh, because for the reasons that we've already talked about, I think nurses are ideally suited to this. And um, you know, particularly nurses who have a, a psychiatry background um, or a palliative care background, you know, there's, there's a lot of overlap with their existing skill sets. That's really interesting. I I would never have thought of the FDA connection around, you know, this isn't just them approving MDMA for therapeutic uses, right? Because you're not saying that MDMA is going to be something that a nurse practitioner can just prescribe and say, go to the pharmacy and take one a day and no, let's follow and, up next month. Right. It's, right. Not it's like actually that. really important to underscore that I haven't said this yet, that if and when these are approved by the FDA, they will be subject to what's called a REMS program, a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy. Mm-hmm. So another drug that is, um, so for example, like those of us who work in psychiatry are familiar with clozaril, which sure. is an antipsychotic. Clozapine, that, yeah. Clozapine, exactly, that, is, um, that has the risk of, of creating some blood dyscrasias. So um, in order to prescribe that drug, it has to go through a REMS program. So the pharmacy has to talk to the lab and make sure the person has had a CBC before they get their drug refilled on a certain schedule. 
Um, and that's how the FDA mitigated the risk associated with Clozeril. Um, other drugs that you know you might think of similar is is like surgical anesthetics. You know, those are prescribable drugs. You know, so for example, midazolam or Versed is a prescribable drug. It's used all the time in procedural uh, surgeries, but it's not something you're going to go get at the pharmacy. Um, it's not something you can prescribe and go pick up at the pharmacy. So this would be a drug that is only given in a controlled setting by people who are qualified to do it uh, in settings that are are considered uh, adequate to provide this 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 treatment safe, safely, you know, cause that's first and foremost is that this has to be done safely. Mm-hmm. Funny you should mention Versed because over this last year of the pandemic and for some of us, the last four years of the previous administration, a lot of us probably would have been liking taking Versed every day because um, it causes some significant amnesia. Amnesia, right. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't remember who, <laughs> who was the president. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What, what's this thing about a pandemic? Yeah, exactly. But, um, like Rick Van Winkle. Yeah. So what I wanted to ask you was, you know, like medication assisted treatment for substance use disorders, Suboxone, et cetera, mm-hmm. that whole class. Mm-hmm. That's kind of similar though you know, a nurse practitioner who is wavered to prescribe that medication-assisted mm-hmm. treatment, they actually mm-hmm. do write a prescription and the patient fills it and takes it home uh, unless the patient's not very reliable and they get like a seven-day um, supply and they have to come back every Wednesday to get another prescription. So it's somewhat similar, though you're not taking that in a therapeutic environment, you're actually taking it home and taking it every day. But that's right. It sounds yeah. like there's some similarity in that, you know, the nurse practitioner has to be specially wavered to prescribe it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very strict protocol for prescribing mm-hmm. Suboxone in those treatments, right? Is there right. is there some connection there? Well it's interesting that you should mention Suboxone because I believe mm-hmm. Suboxone and naltrexone, naltrexone um, are two drugs where the FDA did have some verbiage in the label where they said it is suggested or it is, is strongly encouraged or some words like that, that the patient also be in a uh, treatment program. In a, uh, but they're very nonspecific about what that should be, mm-hmm. who should be providing that, and for how long. And the difference between the medication that you mentioned, like Suboxone, that is taken on a daily basis in order to prevent withdrawals. Right. Uh, and whereas psychedelic medicines would not be taken on a regular basis, nobody's going to be taking this uh, every day or, you know, even, you know, every week, um, you know, it may turn out that in the future that people may need repeat treatments periodically. You know, this is, this is similar to how some people with severe depression really benefit from electroconvulsive therapy, but they might only need it once a year. Mm-hmm. For example, you know, they may have a kind of depression that tends to relapse after many months of following ECT treatment, mm-hmm. and they may go in once a year for treatment, and, and that's how they maintain their, their well-being and their functioning. And it may be the case that with psychedelic-assisted therapies that it's not a one-and-done treatment, but that it's episodic, but it's never going to be a treatment that is taken on a regular basis. That's, yeah. that's not the future that we're imagining here. And that's where I feel like maybe regulatory agencies like the FDA and then insurance companies, namely CMS, because of people, you know, a lot of private insurances follow what the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services say. So sure. if CMS says, okay, we're going to pay for this twice a year, 
for this particular, like for PTSD, mm-hmm. um, then other insurances will follow suit. So right. then we have, that's where the door opens to prescribing and then, you know, having protocols and insurance is paying. And this gets beyond just people who can afford it. Like right now for mm-hmm. ketamine, you know, for the most part, what I understand, it's people who can afford to pay that's for right. ketamine treatment. And that's that's where healthcare elitism and healthcare inequities start to rear their ugly head when, mm-hmm. with stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Right. And a lot of insurers will deny ketamine treatment because they'll say it's off label. Yeah, of course. Because well, that's not because it was it FDA is. approved in 1970 as a surgical anesthetic and nobody knew it was antidepressant back then. Right. So nobody's done trials. Now, interestingly, S-ketamine, which is the Spravato nasal spray, hmm. is FDA approved. That's the enantomer of, of, of ketamine, of racemic ketamine. Hmm. And it is FDA approved for depression. And it's also very expensive. <laughs> So interestingly, yeah. insurance will pay for it because it's FDA approved, even though it's significantly more expensive than racemic ketamine and probably not any more effective. Yeah. And when it comes to these issues of access, this is really where my, my hackles go up when I, I, I worry about you know elitism in healthcare and how do we get treatments that have been proven effective and more effective right. than the ones we have now out mm-hmm. to the people who could benefit most. So, yeah, I mean, that's a whole nother conversation about healthcare disparities, which I've had on this show before and will in the future because it's it's a thing that we have to talk about. But this is also a place where I think nurses could play a role in advocacy because, you know, we're always told that we are the most trusted profession and right. that we are the voice of our patients. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the thing with, say, a treatment like PTSD is that... Um, you know, so a, a course of PTSD therapy with MDMA could be fairly expensive, not for the cost of the drug, because mm-hmm. MAPS plans to make it relatively inexpensive. They're not, they're a, 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 a public benefit drug corporation. They're not trying to please stockholders, um, but just the labor time alone. So one of our courses of therapy is about, it's about 40 hours of, of psychotherapy time mm-hmm. split between two people. So that's a lot of hours. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, even at a, a modest hourly rate of pay, that adds up pretty fast. Mm-hmm. And so the, the issue of equity and access is going to be a really important one. But, you know, this is where if payers looked at something like PTSD on the long view, and realize that PTSD for many people can be a chronic lifelong condition, which manifests in multiple medical costs, not just psychiatric, but physical ones as well. And socioeconomic costs. Huge socioeconomic costs, loss of productivity. Um, and so that, that while it may be a significant upfront uh, investment in that person, the potential for actually curing them is relatively high. And that person returning to a, a normal level of functioning and productivity. And so the problem right now, of course, is that, you know, the average insurer looks at their enrollee and says, well, this person's going to be in a different job and going to be somebody else's problem in 18 months. So why do I care what the outcome is 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Mm-hmm. Um, so right now the, the priorities are all skewed in terms of, of short-term restriction of expensive right. uh, treatments. And it brings it's, us to conversations about, about um, single payer healthcare, and yeah. that that can take us into so many directions because 
there are many conversations to have about these things. So nurses can be advocates, right, for their patient's care. They can be advocates at the legislative level when some of this stuff eventually gets to, you know, into, say, getting written into Nurse Practice Act or whatever in each state. So there's plenty of ways nurses can get involved. And it sounds like Open Nurses is one of the first um, um, portals for nurses to get involved in the conversation and at least understand what's going on and talk to other nurses. And, you know, before we wrap up, um, I want to talk about this so much more, but um, I wanted to ask you on... On a physiological level, what do we understand? Because this is something I just I just find fascinating. What do we think is happening in the brain of a person who undergoes these treatments? I know you've mentioned functional MRIs. So are there actually like neuro neurogenic changes that are happening? If you're saying cure, if you can mm-hmm. cure someone of PTSD. What are some of the theories about how this actually works? Yeah, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. So in PTSD, uh, you know, there's a structure at the top of your brainstem called the limbic system. Mm-hmm. And I like to think of this as like, this is like airport security or the smoke detector of your brain. So all incoming sensory information has to go past that on its way to somewhere else in your brain. And what that's, the function there is to scan for danger just like an airport security staff does. They're looking for trouble, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But most of the information just flows right in, right? Just like most passengers go right through security without ever being stopped. Well, in somebody with PTSD, that part of their brain, which was activated when they were being traumatized, that was adaptive, right? Because if you're in combat, for example, being on high alert all the time might save your skin, However, when you go home and you can't turn that off, you remain in this state of what we call hypervigilance. Um, you startle really easily. Yeah. You get that sort of fight or flight response at the yeah. drop of a hat, right? So either that happens or people completely numb out, sometimes with the help of drugs and alcohol, and, um, and, and kind of disengage from not only that part of their internal world, but often everything else that goes along with it. You know, so they, so they sort of anesthetize themselves. So it's thought that MDMA actually decreases the activity in that area of the brain for the period of time that the person is on the drug. Additionally, what it seems to do is it increases activity in areas of the brain where we have conscious thought about the past and make sense out of things. So like the frontal lobe mm-hmm. and the connections between the, the frontal lobe prefrontal lobe and uh, the uh, and that emotional uh, uh, alert system, the, the limbic system of the brain. So that what we can begin to do is to actually make sense out of, so be able to turn down the alarm system enough to start to unpack the traumatic experience and look at it without becoming completely overwhelmed and, and triggered by the, the, the unpacking process. Oh, and then okay. because you have the part of your brain which allows for context or allows for meaning to occur Mm -hmm. uh, is now online, that part of the brain can start to make sense out of these memories. And so the idea that when we repat, when we kind of put them back on the shelf, they're put back in a way that is less activated, less kind of jangly and less likely to, uh, to continue to, to manifest in those PTSD symptoms. I mean, that's on the neuroscience level. 
sort of phenomenologically, if you talk to people who've undergone this treatment, for a lot of people, there is a deep experience of self-compassion. Um, I've heard more than one person say, you know, wow, I've been really hard on myself since those, since that traumatic event or those traumatic events. Um, and, you know, I actually have a lot of empathy and compassion for that younger person who I once was, who had to go through this really difficult event. Um, I can now bring my adult self further down the line to that younger part of myself that was hurt. Um, when I was a kid or when I was a young person or whatever, whenever early in one, in one's life, when that trauma occurred, um, oftentimes psychedelic experiences give people a sense of connectivity to the larger world. There, there's often a kind of awe experience that occurs when people will say, well, people will have experience of like, wow, everything really, I feel really connected mm. to a larger world. And, you know, one of the cruel things about mental illness, particularly things like depression and PTSD, is that they, you end up residing on a, on a very lonely island of your own experience. Yes. And it's not that people don't want to engage with the larger world. It's just they're not able to. Thank and you. That is so key right there. That is so key. Thanks for yeah. saying that. Yeah. And often they're, they're blamed for that. You know, they're told, why don't, you know, why don't you get out more? Why don't, why don't you talk to more people? Um, you know, why don't you go have some fun? Right. And unfortunately that those messages, while maybe well-intentioned end up often making people feel even worse. Uh, because they because, can't necessarily summon the energy or exactly. motivation to do that thing. So right. that's right. such a great connection, Andrew. Thank you for saying that. And I've been very open on the show about living with depression myself and PTSD and chronic pain. So, you know, so I can relate. And yeah. I think a lot of nurses out there can too. And with, I know we have to wrap up here, but with the pandemic and moral injury and secondary mm -hmm. trauma and compassion and burnout and, you know, I mean, compassion fatigue and burnout, you know, a lot of nurses are actually going to be needing all sorts of intervention and treatment and kindness and compassion to unwrap and unravel what they've experienced in the course of the pandemic and yep. whenever the pandemic yep. happens to come to a close. So we've got a lot of work to do. And it sounds like from your perspective as a psychiatric nurse practitioner and person who um, founded Open Nurses, that you're, you and your colleagues are opening the door. I'm thinking of Aldous Huxley's The Doors of Perception, mm -hmm. but you're opening the door <laughs> for nurses to step into this really new and burgeoning field and see opportunity for their careers, but also for their own healing and the healing of people they love and their patients. So it sounds like there's a lot of space here and it's going to take time. This isn't going to happen overnight. No, this, no. this has been a, this really has been a process that's been going on for in this current era for about 20 years. Yeah, the, it's going to take time. The first study started around 2000. Yeah. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that sort of moral injury of, of being a nurse in this pandemic. One of my uh, co-founder colleagues, uh, Liz Willis, is, is doing some work at looking at the potential for an intervention with nurses and other medical professionals who have experienced trauma as a result of the of the pandemic mm -hmm. and looking to see if something like MDMA assisted therapy might be helpful in that because 
I suspect we're just at the tip of the iceberg with this. You know, we're, we, you know, the code just ended and mm-hmm. we are, you know, it's not even, it's still going on. This is one of those codes that just goes on code. and on. Yeah. And, you know, it's after a long code, there's that moment where you just say, what just happened? Mm-hmm. You know, and you're kind of stunned, you know, sort of dumbfounded for a little while. And then you go home and you can't sleep, mm-hmm. you know, and you can't get that image out of your head. And, you know, unlike a code, which maybe happens once, this has been going on for a year now. And a lot of us, you know, nurses, nurses are really badass. You know, we just show up and we do what we do, but sometimes we do that at the cost of ourselves. Don't we? And so I think there's going to be a lot of cleanup to do at the end of this, this pandemic within our own profession, you know, and I worry about things like suicide rates among nurses and other medical professionals, because we hold a lot don't we? And we're going to need some help to unburden ourselves when this is further behind us. Yeah, there's work to do. And well, thanks for being one of the people out there who are doing this work and opening new doors of therapeutic um, approaches to trauma and these other conditions like substance use disorders. And thanks for being, you know, at the crest of the wave and kind of paving the way for a lot of people are going to come after you. So, and, and thanks for being here and we'll have to have you back and maybe other people from open nurses, you know, um, in the future to kind of continue to this conversation because it's obviously just beginning. It's not over. We'd love to do that. And thank you for, to you and your audience for having me. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Nurse Keith Show. Remember to learn all about open nurses and Andrew Penn and his work will be at nursekeith.com forward slash episode 319. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode. And I want you to take inspired action every day in the interest of your personal and professional satisfaction and growth. And if you need personalized holistic career coaching, please look no further. Shoot me an email at keith at nursekeith.com. We can have a complimentary consult and you can get 10% off your first coaching package if you mention the show or Andrew Penn or or, um, psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, The Nurse Keith Show is a member of Ars Longa Media, a collaborative network of podcasts and media entities dedicated to professional education and partnering to improve social ills. We're at arslonga.media. That's A-R-S-L-O-N-G-A dot media. The Nurse Keith Show is also a member of the Health Podcast Network, along with podcasts from the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, UPenn Nursing, you name it, healthpodcastnetwork.com. The Nurse Keith Show is produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. And Mark Cappy Spiesen is our stalwart social media ringmaster. And I'm always grateful to Rob and Mark for keeping the wheels turning in the right direction. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. And friend of the pod and my new friend, Andrew Penn, bidding you adieu from San Francisco, California. San Francisco, the Bay Area. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for gracing the airways with your presence. And we will catch everybody on the flip side. Mm-hmm.